Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, your employees may be getting really good at working remotely. That has become a real managerial uh, challenge for uh, executives in all branches and all departments of government is how do you make sure your workforce doesn't do too much work and they actually have a good work-life balance. Advice to meet the letter and the spirit of the EO on small business contracting. We still need to do what's best for our agency, our mission, and the taxpayer. Um, small business contracting is that, so you know, let's continue to focus, but you know, let's not go nuts here. And a breakthrough in the security clearance process. This is the new paradigm and framework that shifts really from a cycle of initial investigation, a periodic reinvestigation that at five years if you have a top secret or 10 years if you have a secret, to one of continuous evaluation and, and eventually continuous vetting. It's Monday, December 13th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies can keep using a special hiring authority to fill pandemic response jobs. A memo to agency human capital leaders from the director of the Office of Personnel Management, Kieran Ahuja, says the extension runs through June 30th, 2022. The memo says the appointments are limited to jobs agencies need because of COVID response. A new strategic plan from the Federal Emergency Management Agency includes equity and climate change as important elements. The administrator of FEMA, Deanne Criswell, writes the agency, quote, must instill equity as a foundation for emergency management. The new strategic plan covers 2022 through 2026. A new White House executive order on customer experience includes accountability metrics to track agency progress. John Hewitt-Jones is writing about it at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does the EO say specifically that it will watch as agencies do? Welcome. Hi, Francis. The document, uh, the directive, basically um, requires that agencies put the experience of citizens at the heart of, of everything they do, which um, in practical terms means ensuring that um, uh, the, uh, the points, touch points that, that American citizens have with government um, uh, become seamless. And this order it is really focused on the kind of key, it spells out the key of life events that citizens have to focus on. So uh, whether it's filing taxes or uh, claiming retirement benefits or um, accessing social security, it's a, the order looks to kind of reorganize and recenter agency priorities onto those kind of key touch points. Um, so that, you know, in practice, that means that when, you know, when citizens access, access those services online, it'll be mandatory that they have a good experience. You know, agencies will, will be required to, to really take into account um, what it's like to use those services and to, to allot resources to, um, to improving the experience. The story that you have up on this at fedscoop.com is headlined White House to demand accountability from agencies over customer experience EO. What's the accountability that the White House has written into this EO, John? Yeah, so Francis, um, at a briefing earlier earlier today, um, we heard from uh, various OMB uh, representatives who were explaining that the White House will be looking carefully at how agencies implement this. As part of the order, the White House has identified 35 so-called high-impact agencies, which uh, those are the agencies that have particularly close touch points with, with citizens, for example, IRS or HHS. Um, and what they're really looking for here is evidence of the progress that agencies are making 
Uh, we didn't get precise details of what these metrics will be, but but the White House is clear that they'll be expecting regular updates from agencies, and this will be uh, tracked right from the top, right from, from, from President Biden. Do we know what they will consider success, how they will measure what success looks like, or is that kind of happening on the fly? We haven't yet had a great deal of precision over uh, over, over how um, the, the White House will, will measure accountability, but we do know they'll be looking at design uh, for, uh, of digital services, um, the delivery that users are, are experiencing. Um, so from, from what we know so far, they'll be, they'll, be, they'll be looking at the kind of granularity of digital platforms as they're being rolled out or, or revamped. They'll be relating to the precise kind of desi- design of these digital platforms. John Hewitt-Jones, thanks very much as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all of these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. The Social Security Administration will start its back-to-office plan January 3rd. That back-to-office plan includes employees returning to locations where they'll deal with customers face-to-face. Bob Osborne's Chief Technology Officer for Global Governments for ServiceNow. He's former Chief Information Officer of the National Nuclear Security Administration. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the ramifications for these people coming back to the office and for dealing with customers face-to-face after such a long period of time being on remote work? And some of the employees of the agencies will continue on remote work. Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And, you know, this is really the question of our time right now as as people are learning how work is going to change going forward as we talk about safe workplace and how do agencies accommodate delivering those services that citizens expect in this new type of a hybrid work environment. And when is, is it appropriate for people to start gathering together in offices again and conducting business somewhat the way that it was previously? I think it's really incumbent upon government officials to ensure that they've taken the the appropriate steps to create a safe environment for everyone, depending upon what their individual sensitivities are to interactions at this point. And I think most agencies are really looking at that fairly carefully. I see the Social Security Administration is kind of leading the way on when they're going to bring people back into the office, but they've taken a lot of great steps to ensure that it's safe for the employees as well as the citizens who are going to be interacting with them. What is the role of the CIO, the CTO, the CISO in those organizations to provide the infrastructure that's necessary to do that? Especially, I think of the analogy of a car, and please correct me if this isn't a good one, but if you don't drive it for a while, if it sits in the garage, you need to kind of tune it up a little bit before you just get it out after six months and drive it around. Is the IT infrastructure of an agency the same, or is it just... It, if it was fine when you left it, it's fine when you come back. Well, that's a, that's a very insightful question, as usual, Francis. But, you know, fortunately, they haven't been sitting idle. Uh, one of the uh, byproducts of the pandemic was this extreme acceleration to accommodating a hybrid workforce, people working from home. Most uh, government agency technology executives had to very rapidly Uh, If they didn't already have some sort of a remote working environment, uh, if it wasn't a formalized work from home, creating virtual private networks very quickly, having secure access into government systems from wherever employees were going to be logging on from uh, was was a key part of the challenge for the past uh, year and 10 months. So in that regard, the computing infrastructure has been actually in overdrive since the pandemic started. 
what has changed is the accessibility of people back in the building. So many, many organizations have taken advantage of technology, particularly platform type technology, which gives visibility and the control into access management. So identity control access management becomes really important. Zero trust uh, capabilities within the cybersecurity environment become super important in a hybrid work environment. But now you have to add in the physical, physical security aspect of how do you recognize for example, uh, many agencies now have requirements for vaccination or, or uh, COVID testing before you can enter the government workplace. And how do you how do you track that and understand that everyone is safe to enter the work environment and then get a picture of what that looks like from a managerial perspective? And these platforms uh, really give that type of visibility and control to managers to be able to, to not just create the environment that existed before the pandemic, uh, but again, modify what was a hyper turbo uh, accelerated experience for a virtual and, uh, and hybrid workforce back into a much more on-prem uh, perspective with some people still working remotely. So it's gonna continue to be an evolving and agile workplace as we go forward. I think that uh, most agencies are really stepping up and, and responding to that challenge. There are some questions coming out of Capitol Hill now about what the remote work and, and telework posture of the government looks like long term. We saw over the weekend uh, the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, asking lots of questions uh, about through the Office of Management and Budget about that. And I wonder, how does an IT leader in government, separate from the political issue, go about demonstrating to his leadership, her leadership, or some outside organization, whether it's an overseer on the Hill or an IG office, GAO, somebody like that, the effectiveness and the efficiency and the long-term capacity of an information technology network to support remote and telework for the long-term, Bob? Well, I think that what, what we're seeing is uh, a shifting of the guard, if you will, of, of an understanding of what the workplace of the future is going to be looking like. Uh, some people have have uh, made public comment about wanting to return to business as usual, having everyone return to brick and mortar offices. However, what we found is, and and this we could do a whole show on on this subject, Francis, is the social impact of remote work for an extended period of time has demonstrated a lot of people don't want to go back to the office. Mm -hmm. They're really happy working from home and having more accessibility to their family and their their home life and yet still being productive uh, in the workplace. What it's really challenged, I think uh, much greater to a much greater degree than the technology aspect and the sustainability of the technology to support a hybrid workforce. I think that's in place and, and the agencies have done really well in doing that and managing that workload. I think that the more important thing is gonna be a, a human aspect of managing people. It's gonna change that environment. I've, I've talked previously and you and I have discussed this concept of hyper-personalization um, as people interact with government agencies and, and bring that commercial-like experience into the workplace, that's going to take a forefront um, in a very more uh, pronounced role going forward because people really don't want to go into offices anymore. They want to have easy accessibility from devices that they carry around with them all the time. And they want to have increased uh, personalization of the services that they're getting from government agencies. So this is a really cool time. I often say this on your show, uh, Francis, and, and you probably are, are tiring of it, but it's a super exciting time to be in technology. Uh, 
because this is truly technology and service of people and the nature of work itself is transforming over the next five years. I never get tired of our conversations, Bob. Don't sell yourself short. Um, how does an IT leader in government um, continue to assess the productivity of his or her team so that when questions arise, what are you doing, how are you doing it, that person's equipped to answer that up the chain? Yeah, that's, that's really a uh, difficult question for many managers. However, I would, I would posit that most IT managers are well-equipped to assess the performance of their people because they're very uh, metric-driven. They're very uh, oriented toward having technology register, you know, who logged on to what system when, how long were they on that system. That's all very read readily available information. What we're seeing, though, is how technology is supporting the other lines of business within agencies in delivering the mission services that are critical to citizens and utilizing technology to give them the tool set that they need to, to gauge productivity of employees. And remarkably, as we've gone through the past year and 10 months or so, we see an increase in the uh, performance of most of the workforce because they, they're actually more productive by spending more quality time doing their work. So there's less distraction actually when they're working at home. It's kind of counterintuitive. And that's why I say it's really fascinating the human element of this entire conversation. The tools are there, putting them in place in, in a way that managers now have a, a new type of a dashboard that measures productivity. And then having that conversation with, the with their uh, employees is really important because the other aspect, kind of the negative, right? So there's a yin and a yang to most things in life. More productivity, people really enjoy being at home, but they're burning out really fast. So you've got, uh, in, in particularly in technology, and I know all the technologists out there listening to your program would agree that most technologists are alpha personalities. They're driven. They want to do things. They're, they're really involved in their work. And when you're doing that work at home, you tend to spend a lot more time doing it. So people are burning out at a higher rate. So that has become a real managerial uh, challenge for uh, executives in all branches and all de departments of government is how do you make sure your workforce doesn't do too much work and they actually have a good work-life balance? A lot there to chew on and we'll continue the conversation, Bob. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to talk to you. Francis, it's always a pleasure and happy holidays to you and yours. You can read more about the Social Security Administration's Back to the Office plan in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. You heard earlier about the new Customer Experience Executive Order President Biden signed today. Another recent executive order directs agencies to focus on contracting set-asides. Joe Jordan's president and CEO of Actaparo. He is the former administrator of federal procurement policy at the Office of Management and Budget. Joe, welcome. It's good to see you. What did you see as you read this executive order, both in the words that were on the page and in between the lines? Welcome. Sure. Thank you, Francis. Great to be here. You know, I think there were a lot of positive things in the memo, uh, both in terms of um, highlighting to agencies, like you said, between the lines, the messaging of, hey, we really want um, increased focus on small businesses, small business contractors. We're going to give you credit against kind of the best in class category management, spend under management type goals if you do this, which is huge. So it's, there's an actual um, carrot and quantifiable incentive. And then 
Uh, it really follows up on things that the administration has been saying since, you know, even back in the campaign around minority contracting. And, and that's a hard thing to, to get at through federal procurement because there is a small disadvantaged business goal, but the only tool to get there is the, the 8A program. And so, you know, I, a couple of things that I think are not as awesome about the memoir. One, I view all of these wonderful small business set-aside programs in parity with each other. This memo is really focused more on small disadvantaged businesses, and I think that's a shame. I think women-owned small businesses, service-stable vets, hub-zone businesses, et cetera, deserve the same level of focus. Um, and then the reality is when you talk to people who uh, spend a lot of time in the small business contracting arena, again, the tools by which uh, agencies can try to hit this doubled goal for minority procurement are limited. And so it really is going to probably mean more sole source 8A contracts, less competition, more of those to Alaska Native corporations and tribes, um, just because they can get these big multi-billion dollar, hundred million, hundreds of millions of dollar sole source contracts that individual 8A firms can't. So it'll be interesting to see what the practical effect of the memo is over the next couple of years. Over the, of all of those pieces that you mentioned, Joe, the one that struck me the most was the one about introducing changes to the federal government's use of category management to boost contracting opportunities for underserved small businesses. And the reason for that is because I had people after the EO came out that just kind of messaged me and said, I wondered if category management was even still a thing. So I, does that mean that it wasn't a thing for a while and now it's back? Or does that mean that it became so embedded into the way that the government does business that people didn't really think about it or talk about it? They just kind of did it. Yeah, I think more the latter, Francis. You know, it was still a thing. And, um, you know, it survived across administrations. And I really see it as, um, you know, recognition that one of the challenges of category management, and I'm, you know, very supportive of the things Leslie has done since this came out. Leslie Field and, um, you know, Ann Rung, who, who kind of kickstarted this, I think did a great job. But there were challenges around the small business side of it. And so I think this memo recognizes that and, and gives a great tool that I know SBA had been pushing for since the beginning to kind of count these small business set-aside contracts as kind of category management and spend under management uh, positives. And so, yeah, I think it's a recognition that category management is more in some form or the other here to stay. And uh, let's make sure we make it work as well as possible. The first item in the executive order was asking agencies to move up to 11% of spending for uh, procurement dollars on small disadvantaged businesses. This, the legal goal the, or the law is 5%. I, I was struck by the word asking agencies to create ambitious goals. What does that mean? I mean, I know the administration can't say we automatically must be moved from five to 11, but what's the stick behind that carrot? We'd like you to do this. Do you think? Um, well, you know, frankly, I'm not sure there is one. You, you laid it out perfectly. Statute is clear about, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the five, five, three, three type goals Those are the percentages for the various socioeconomic categories. This one being five, as you said, um, small business SBA regulations are clear that all of these programs are to be viewed in parity with each other. Um, so I really think it's more um, a message of, Hey, Hey folks, you know, the president said down in Tulsa, he wants the government to get to 15% uh, of 
contract dollars being awarded to small disadvantaged businesses um, in the next five years. Uh, this is the first step of trying to um, move along a path towards that goal. And we need your help. And we want you focused on this. And you know the president cares about it. So please do everything you can uh, to further that. We're not actually giving you additional carrots and sticks. We're not actually giving you any new or interesting tools to achieve that. But making it clear, it's a presidential priority. And, and, and please help go along that path. So again, that's why I wonder what the practical effect will be other than messaging to, you know, the political base and others that minority contracting is important to this administration. All right. If you're a senior procurement executive, maybe not the CAO, but a pretty high level in an agency, or you manage a bunch of CEOs or whatever, Joe, what do you do with this? What do you look at and say, all right, our action items are these moving forward? Yeah, I think uh, two things, Francis. One, um, you know, in terms of the, the category management piece of it, I think it tells you, okay, uh, small business contracting goals are in agency SES performance evaluations have been for a while. This is a, you know, a um, bipartisan multi-administration push. And we're now getting another carrot, on a, you know, another um, incentive to do this with the, you know, accounting for category management. That's great. The memo leads though with the small disadvantaged business piece. And frankly, I would convene my procurement folks and say, look, if you have an opportunity to get contracts in the hands of small disadvantaged businesses, please do it. The president OMB has said, this is a priority or team players, please look for those. However, I don't want anybody going crazy and, you know, turning something into a $250 million sole source ANC contract just to meet this goal. We still need to do what's best for our agency, our mission, and the taxpayer. Um, small business contracting is that. So, you know, let's continue to focus, but, you know, let's not go nuts here. Joe Jordan, thanks very much as always. I appreciate you not going nuts today. Absolutely, Francis. It's a pleasure. You can read more about the new executive order on small business contracting in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. The next program is tomorrow, and you'll hear from some pretty big guests on the show this week. Coming on Tuesday's show, General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired. Wednesday, it's the new chair of the Defense Business Board, Deborah Lee James, the former secretary of the Air Force. And Thursday, Congressman Jerry Connolly's here. The Daily Scoop podcast debuts every afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Three quarters of national security professionals that are eligible for the Continuous Evaluation Security Vetting Program are in it as of March of this year. The Government Accountability Office finds more progress and some work to do on the security clearance process for government and industry. Brian Mazanek is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues write in this most recent work, in 2018, GAO placed the government-wide personnel security clearance process on its high-risk list. How did it get there? Why did you do that? And how does that connect with the work that you've done most recently? Welcome, Brian. Great. Yeah, thank you, Francis, and, th and thanks for having me today. Um, so our work in this area actually goes back a little bit further in terms of the relationship to our high-risk list, but personnel vetting, the personal security clearance process, it's critical to the national security enterprise to ensure we have a workforce that's trustworthy and, and postured to protect classified 
national security information. So this is an area where there have been concerns. In 2005, actually, we designated DOD's personnel security clearance program as a high-risk area because primarily because of delays and backlogs in the process. DOD made some progress, um, and we actually removed it from our high-risk list in 2011. Um, however, there, the, that may have been premature in, in light of the fact that, um, that some of the the challenges we saw it back in that period uh, came came to the fore again, and, and we put it back on our, our high-risk list as a government-wide area in January of 2018. Um, the, re the three sort of principal reasons why we did that were concerns, again, in, in the area of timeliness and the timely processing of clearances. The backlog had grown, uh, again, to, to some of the, the the numbers and size that we saw previously. Also, the there were issues with, and, and this is what we talk about in our current report as well, with measuring investigation quality and also with ensuring uh, IT security, among other things. So those were the principal reasons, really, uh, we put it back on the list and, and, and some of the reasons why it initially got on the list in 2005. Here are the words my eyes gravitated to in your work, Brian. The Performance Accountability Council principles that comprise the DDM at the Office of Management and Budget, the Director of National Intelligence, OPM Director, and the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security have made progress in implementing Trusted Workforce 2.0. Trusted Workforce 2.0 was supposed to be the big change to the security clearance process that would eliminate the backlog that existed at OPM and overall reform the service so that uh, both government employees and contractors could go through the system faster. What's the progress that you saw in implementing Trusted Workforce 2.0, Brian? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Oh, that's a great question, and I think that's a key takeaway from our report. We look directly at the, the progress of this reform effort, Trusted Workforce 2.0, and, and it's really important to recognize that progress has been made. Um, there have been really significant achievements um, in this area uh, the backlog of investigations that we, we've mentioned a couple times already in this discussion was really significant. There were around 725,000 uh, cases in April of 2018. Again, that's around when we put it back on the high risk list or soon after. Um, they've reduced that backlog now to, as part of this Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort, to a, what they consider a steady state of a roughly 200,000 um, cases at any given time today, which is a manageable workload for them. Um, they've also rolled out key uh, new uh, policies and guidance that, that underpin really a fundamental transformation in this area. They published the core vetting doctrine in January of this year. Um, this is the new paradigm and framework that shifts really from a cycle of initial investigation, a periodic reinvestigation at, at five years if you have a top secret or 10 years if you have a secret to one of continuous evaluation and, and eventually continuous vetting, which is the series of automated record checks on a variety of different timescales to, to better capture potential incidents of concern in between those periodic reinvestigations. That's also helping with the timeliness issue, and um, really it's a, it's a fundamental transformation. But as uh, I think you probably recognize, having looked at our report, um, we do see some key areas where they, they need to make uh, continued improvement as they move forward under this reform. So a lot of great progress, but definitely more work to be done. Definitely want to talk about the progress that remains, but I saw one thing here that I thought was a big win. 
about three-quarters of the eligible national security population in executive branch agencies was enrolled in a continuous evaluation system as of March 2021. Based on where we were coming from before and the magnitude of implementing that program, that's a big deal, isn't it, Brian? It is, yeah, absolutely. And we have prior work uh, where we've made recommendations for that I think played a role in helping push them to flesh out the, uh, and the policies and guidance for continuous evaluation that moved it from the very small pilot it initially was to this much broader rollout. And actually, since March, this isn't reflected in our report, but as of the beginning of this fiscal year, um, the entire national security population is required now to be enrolled in what they call Trusted Workforce 1.25 continuous evaluation. So the, the, a, an initial uh, program that has three automated record checks as part of it. And by the beginning of next fiscal year, they'll move to uh, programs that are 1.5 compliant with seven automated record checks and eventually to a yet-to-be-defined 2.0 state, which will uh, presumably have a continuous value with potentially more record checks, other components. But yes, that's a, that's a huge win for sure that uh, the government has been able to implement that um, as, as quickly and effectively as they have. All right, to your concerns, the Defense Department doesn't have a reliable schedule to help manage the National Background Investigation Services system. What's the problem with that, Brian, and what what did you find, rather than not a reliable schedule, what did you find instead? Yeah, um, thanks, Francis. This is a key, key area, I think, going forward with Trusted Workforce 2.0. They've made progress, as we've discussed, in some, in some of these areas with policy, guidance, getting the, the backlog reduced. But the IT piece of this entire equation is really, really important. Um, the National Background Investigation Service, NBIS, is the IT system, the key component to really implement the reforms going forward. Continuous evaluation, continuous vetting will, will uh, be facilitated by this system. Um, it's going to subsume many of the other legacy OPM systems that were transferred to DOD but still exist. Um, and, and there are, as, as you know, some concerns about uh, cybersecurity with some of those systems. So NVIS, as they call it, is, is really, really important. Um, and it's already components of it are being piloted and are functional. Um, but uh, what we looked at specifically, so NVIS is our, is, has had various milestones that it hasn't met in the past. This is uh, something that has existed in concept for a while. Um, they have an integrated master schedule which is how they plan their work. We assessed a June 2020 version of the schedule um, and found that it was not sufficiently reliable. Um, that's important because uh, they lack assurances without having a fully reliable schedule that they will really be able to deliver NBIS on time. And as I mentioned, it's really a, a critical linchpin to the ongoing uh, transformation. So it's important that they stay on schedule. They've, and they noted in their comments, DOD, on our report, that they are uh, meeting some of their key milestones, you know, they, they are, but I think they would have greater assurances if they had a, a fully reliable schedule for NBIS. All right. The fully reliable schedule for NBIS is one of the recommendations, and you have others, which are what, Brian? Yeah, we looked in a few other areas. Um, another one for the Department of Defense as well was in the area of uh, workforce management. Um, so they as they go through this transformation and there was the transfer of a significant portion of the OPM workforce to DOD, the stand-up of the Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency, um, we found that they had not yet developed and implemented a comprehensive strategic workforce plan. So we recommend um, that they set a milestone to do so and really put that in place because that's going to be really important to make sure they have the right workforce for 
this new continuous vetting model. We also, so those were our two recommendations to the Department of Defense for um, both the workforce piece and for the NBIS IT piece, because they're managing those. We also had a recommendation um, directed to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and this was focused on another key area our report touches on, which is where we, we see a need for improvement in performance measures. So we uh, are recommending that ODNI develop reliable performance measures that really meet all of the key attributes that we have identified as important for an effective performance measure for every phase of the process. So for initiation, investigation, adjudication, um, that they have performance measures to really see where they're going. We also, on the continuous evaluation piece, we had previously made a recommendation that they have uh, performance measures for CE, for continuous evaluation. They had not and still have not uh, implemented that recommendation. So we actually have a matter for congressional consideration that Congress consider um, legislation or other efforts to push them forward in that area as well. Brian, thanks very much for coming on. It's an important issue, and people on both sides of the government vendor community relationship are really interested in it. I appreciate you talking about it with me today. Absolutely. Thanks, Francis, for the opportunity. You can find a link to Brian's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tuesday's show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.